Frederick Douglass was a 19th century abolitionist. He was a great order and a great statesman. After he escaped slavery in Maryland, he became a leader of the abolitionist movement in New York and Massachusetts. Uh, Mr. Douglas said once this short and very pithy but very powerful and absolutely accurate statement. He said it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Or consider this anonymous letter from a father to his son, which reads as such. The father says, Dear son, as long as you live under this roof, you will follow the rules. In our house, we don't have a democracy. I didn't campaign to be your father, and you didn't vote for me. We're father and son by the grace of God. I consider it a privilege, and I accept the responsibility. In accepting it, I have an obligation to perform the role of a father. I'm not your pal. We can share many things, but you must remember I'm your father. This is 100 times more meaningful than me being your pal. You will do as I say as long as you live in this house. And whatever I ask you to do is motivated by love. Now, this may be hard for you to understand at times, son, but the rule holds. You will understand perfectly when you have a son of your own. Until then, trust me, love dad. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Our passage this morning is verses 4 through 11. Now, our passage is not primarily about child-rearing, but it assumes certain realities. It assumes certain standards, flowing from even the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 4, where God instructed them and God instructs us, fathers, Fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And that is the father's, the lowercase father's, discipline. In our text, the author of Hebrews argues from the lesser to the greater. He argues from the earthly father to the heavenly father. The sermon title this morning, what we have in verses 4 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 12, is the uppercase father's discipline. Beloved, listen as I read, and again, our passage begins in verse 4, but I'll begin reading in verse 1 to remind ourselves of what proceeded immediately before. This is the Word of God, Hebrews 12, and verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart." You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, 
and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." And this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we see in these eight verses is the author brings out for us four constituent parts of the Father's discipline. And this is in the backdrop of this original Jewish Christian audience, ethnically Jewish believing audience that were distracted, that were being tempted Uh, 2,000 years later, we are distracted. We have temptations as well. Many of the influences, if not most of the influences in our life, seek to have us escape from reality. What God commands us and tells us in Scripture in this passage as well is that we are to face reality. And even our sufferings, even our tribulations, our hardships, showcase God's infinite wisdom, his overruling sovereignty, and his astonishing mercy. And may any among us who are living in the dream world of social media, gaming, TV, or any other entertainment-based avatar-like existence wake up to the reality that we face as sons and daughters of God. Let's look at the first constituent part of the Father's discipline, namely the providence of discipline. We see this in verses 4 and 5. This is the reality of discipline, the certainty of discipline, and at times the intensity of discipline. And what the author is doing here in verse 4, he's continuing athletic imagery that we saw back in the first three verses of chapter 12, but really goes all the way back to chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, where in between where God places this hall of faith of this list of incredible examples of faith in chapter 11, all the way back in verse 32, he sets the stage for the kind of suffering and tribulation the original audience were undergoing themselves. Chapter 10, verse 32, the author writes, remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So the author there recognizes the difficulty and the struggles that the original audience was going through. And even all the way back in verse 32, the word conflicts, it's the Greek word athletos, from which we get the word athletics. It's a conflict. It's a difficulty. It's a struggle. There's pain. There's commitment that is required. And then after chapter 11, with the illustration after illustration after illustration, he picks that up again with his great exhortation 
in verse 2 of chapter 12, run the race with endurance. Now in verse 4, the author switches from the athletic picture of running the race to fighting the fight. Fighting the fight. We must run the race and we must fight the fight. We run the race laying aside the stuff that hinders us and the sin that entangles us. And we are to fight this fight. Somewhat similar, for example, to what the Apostle Paul instructed the Ephesian church when he talked about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 and the holy war. This is an ongoing battle that every man and woman, every son of God, every daughter of God does face. Look at the text in verse 4. He says, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. What the author does there is he personifies sin as the, your combatant, the opponent, the one whom you are fighting. And he chooses two of the strongest possible words to describe this great and mighty battle, this great conflict. Both the word translated resisted and the one striving only appear this one time in this verse in the New Testament. Uh, resisted is antikathiste me to deploy troops, set an army in the line of battle. It's warfare, military terminology. Striving is antagonizomai. We get the English word antagonist from it, and it means just what you think. It means fighting. It means a combat, a war, and it's ongoing. This is not talking about a three-minute round. It's not talking about a bout that's ten rounds long. This is the continual battle and the continual fight that each one of us in Christ wage. And we know, ultimately, that if we want the blessing, we must carry the burden and we must fight the battle. That's why Spurgeon, for example, said, I would rather be ground to powder than quit my faith. Or we can think of Luther's final words in his incredible hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The final words, Luther says, are, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And it's interesting, the author says, You've not yet resisted, you've not yet fought to the point of shedding blood. Now, what he's using here, he's not talking about getting a bloody nose in a boxing match. He's talking about martyrdom. We remember he gave a list of unnamed martyrs at the end of chapter 11. He's saying you've not yet been called upon to seal your testimony with blood. Remember what we just read in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, the sufferings they had there. But they hadn't yet been called upon to offer up their lifeblood for their faith. He's saying, in a sense, you, you think this is bad, you're still alive. Remember, others have died. You think you've got trouble, look at Jesus. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, verse 2, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. You've been redeemed by one who was tortured and murdered is part of what he is driving home for us here. It's the same kind of theology, the same kind of doctrine, the same kind of encouragement that the Apostle Paul gave to the Philippian church. In Philippians 2.8, speaking of Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So 
after we come out of the list of stellar august examples in chapter 11, we again are reminded that we focus on, we fix our eyes upon, we gravitate and rest upon the example par excellence, the man Jesus Christ who gave his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. Beloved, this is a great and mighty battle of sufferings. And the temptation for the audience is a temptation that we don't enjoy in our comfortable existence here at this point in time, the temptation to abandon the faith in order to save your very life. In some sense, that's the ultimate temptation to submit to sin. John Calvin said this in commenting on this. He said, there's no reason for us to seek our discharge from the Lord, whatever service we performed. No soldier of Christ is discharged except those who've conquered death itself, end quote. And what he meant there at the end, he's making a paradoxical statement. He's saying those who have conquered death itself by dying, and going from this land of the dying to the land of the eternal living are the only ones who have been discharged from this great and mighty battle. You see, God hasn't removed us yet from this realm of tears, but by God's grace and mercy, we're willing to lose everything if needed because of what has been given to us that we cannot lose. Well, the author here in our text continues his admonishment. He says, and you've forgotten the exhortation. You've forgotten the encouragement, the periclesis. Uh, this word exhortation, it's translated as encouragement even back in chapter 6, verse 18. This is the personified wisdom of Proverbs chapter 3 that comes alongside of us and holds us up and walks next to us as we walk the path after our Savior, as we walk even through the valley of the shadow of death. That is the coming alongside strength of the word of God. And the danger and the situation for this group of people was they had forgotten that. They had let it slip away. They had let it drift away to a certain level. And, but I love what he says. Look at the text again. He says, which is addressed to you as sons. And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Now, Solomon wrote Proverbs 3, some 9,000, sorry, not 9,000, 900 plus years prior to the author of Hebrews writing this. But look at the way he says, he says, which is addressed to you as sons. He's saying, and now even some 2,000 years later, the word of God is speaking now to you and to me. The voice of God is conversing with men and conversing with women in every age. It is timeless in its application and timeless and powerful in its relevance. And then he gives the quote at the end of verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. And again, this is from Proverbs 3.11. On a side note, Proverbs 3 is the chapter of Proverbs that is most quoted in the New Testament. This is Similar language, so Solomon wrote that some thousand years before the author of Hebrews. Uh, Job, some thousand plus years, 1,200, 1,300 years or so prior to Solomon writing that, wrote Job 5.17 saying, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. Therefore, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. And 
One other point that I want us to understand here is he says sons, and then even when he quotes from Proverbs, you see the singular son. God makes this personal to you and to me. He speaks to men, and by speaking to the men, he's including the women. Women are included. Women are also recipients of God's loving, caring, shepherding discipline. That's how they understand it. That's how we should understand it. And the word discipline, this is, to be sure, in the case of men, there is a corrective aspect to it. But it is far more than mere correction. It's educational, it's teaching, it's training. And we understand, again, the context here is the sufferings of chapter 10, and even not yet to the point of martyrdom that we saw there in chapter 4. And we know this falls under the umbrella of God's promise in Romans 8. God causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28 and this passage here does not say that all things are good. It does say that for those in Christ, all things are for good, for your good, for my good, for those who love God. And it's a reminder that God is sovereign. That nothing, no tragic thing, no disappointing thing merely happens to you or to me. You see, it's very easy when trial and difficulty comes our way to forget that our very breath lies in the hand of God. That's what Daniel said in Daniel 5.23. The God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways. Your life breath, your ways, and your sufferings, and your difficulties, even your persecution. And as the case may be with brothers and sisters now, and certainly throughout history, even their very martyrdom. You see, beloved, for the believer, for the son of God, for the daughter of God, affliction is not a cave. Suffering is not a dead end. Trial and tribulation, suffering and hardship is a tunnel through which at the end is the purpose of God as the light which shines its way to the end. Persecution, even to the point of martyrdom, is overruled by God and used for not just the good of his children, but the very training of his children. And even before we continue on with new verses, hearkening back to the exhortation to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember God, beloved brother and sister, remember God worked for your good in the gruesome death of his son. Therefore, don't lose courage when you, when I am disciplined or trained. Look to Christ so that we may not grow weary and lose heart, even as he said at the end of verse 3. So that is the first constituent part of the Father's discipline is its provision. The second constituent part is the privilege, the privilege, beloved. Discipline is not the mark of a harsh and heartless father. It's the mark of a father who's deeply and lovingly concerned for his son's or daughter's well-being. Look at verse 6. The author says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplined. This is the same kind of language the Apostle John gave on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation 3 verse 19 where Jesus says, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. 
Or Titus 2, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus, the grace of God has appeared, training us, disciplining us, same word, training us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Beloved, understand this. Dear friend, understand this. Discipline is a privilege that God extends to those whom he loves. A privilege that God extends to those whom he loves. Those who are not his children, unbelievers, receive punishment. His children, believers, receive discipline. We don't receive God's punishment because Jesus took the punishment we deserve on himself. Therefore, we're disciplined, we're not punished. We could capture it this way. God punishes as judge. He disciplines as father. The recipient of his punishment is his enemy. The recipient of his discipline is his child. The end of punishment is condemnation. The end of discipline is holiness, even as we will see in our passage. But verse 6 continues, and this is still under the umbrella of the privilege of discipline, and he scourges every son whom he receives. This is the same word for scourging that describes what Jesus Christ faced on the way to the cross. Mark 10, verse 34, they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. Now, of course, the author of Hebrews, in quoting from Solomon, is not instructing fathers to scourge their sons, or certainly not their daughters, the way that Jesus was scourged. But it's taken the language from Hebrews, which, I'm sorry, the language from Proverbs, which is the rod of correction. And it doesn't minimize or sugarcoat the weight of that. I love what Alistair Begg had to say about this. He said, Anybody who sells you Christianity or God as your father as some kind of soft soap, wishy-washy journey for namby-pamby nitwits doesn't have the Bible in front of them. And he said that much better than I could have said. That's one of the beauty of quoting people. You can get away with quotes like that. Beloved, this is a serious discipline out of love, out of concern, with a shepherding heart, with the eye and heart and mind on eternity, not the here and now. Verse 7, back in our text, it is for discipline that you endure. Picking up this theme of endurance, which began back in chapter 10, verse 32, and then was picked up in verse 2 and 3 of running the race with endurance here in chapter 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Again, this text is not about child-rearing, but it assumes certain realities. It points to the standard, the norm of what should be the case. And the classical biblical expression of a father's love is discipline. And that's not something invented by the author of Hebrews. It's not something that was even invented by Solomon all the way back in Deuteronomy 8.5. Through Moses, God instructed Israel, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Now, of course, from a human standpoint, and if we have some young children, you might recognize this, discipline is not the privilege that the child desires, but it is the privilege the child requires. This is 
at the human level, the kind of child-rearing we all should have had, and it is the kind of child-rearing that we all must implement, must carry out before the Lord. That's why Solomon said, Proverbs 29, verse 17, Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. And it is a joy and a blessing to have my two sons here this morning who indeed do give great delight to my heart. You see, discipline does create hurt, temporary hurt, but not long-term harm. The absence of discipline, however, does cause harm and long-term hurt. Just a few examples from Proverbs to bring this out. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. 19, verse 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. And the author there, Solomon there, is not just talking about physical death. He's talking about the danger, the peril of eternal death, of the second death. Back in our text, verse 8, he says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, all meaning all believers, all believers, back in chapter 3, verse 1, we all partake of the heavenly calling. Chapter 3, 14, we are all partakers of Christ. Now the third appearance, we are all partakers of discipline. Heavenly calling, Christ, and discipline. Which one of these pictures doesn't belong according to the world? But which one of these pictures fits perfectly well according to God? And if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You are born out of unlawful, you're born out of lawful wedlock, not a true son. You see, what the author is doing here is he's saying the privilege of discipline distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. It distinguishes the adopted son of God with the natural son of Satan. And if you don't have discipline, you're an illegitimate child and excluded from what we see in verse 23 of the same chapter, excluded from the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So again, it's the privilege of discipline, and the context here, the privilege of discipline, even to the point of offering up your lifeblood in martyrdom. And of course, church history in past and even now is replete with examples. One that I grabbed were the five young pastors who were martyred for their faith in Lyon, France in the 16th century. Uh, They wrote these words to a former teacher, a former seminary teacher of theirs. This is what they wrote, quote, We're bold to say and affirm that we shall derive more profit in this school for our salvation than has ever been the case in any place where we studied. We testify this persecution and prison is the true school of the children of God, in which they learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in their universities. Indeed, it must not be imagined one can have a true understanding of many of the passages of Scripture without having been instructed by the teacher of all truth in this college of suffering. End quote. Now, Stellar examples, 
In, but in the same way as we think of the incredible examples after example in chapter 11, we go to the example par excellence, the man, Jesus Christ, whom the author of Hebrew tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned discipline from the things which he suffered. Now, there was, of course, no correction for sin because there was no sin. There may have been correction from sinless, uh, don't, don't do that in a sinless way. The whole point was in his humanity, completely without sin, he learned and he was trained, he was educated by discipline, by obedience, even through the things which he suffered. And all of this is part of God's sovereign good plan for you and for me. And there's nothing happenstance about it. It's like the difference between a surgeon who plans the incision for your good and the ER doctor who sews us up after a freak accident. The point is, no matter the hardship, difficulty, trial, suffering, even martyrdom, there are no freak accidents for the child of God in the plan of God. And we don't understand fully. We may never understand fully. We're not commanded to understand fully all the dynamics of what we go through, but beloved brother and sister, we are commanded to believe, to trust God, to put our faith in him, and to say, Lord, I believe you, and I trust you. So, provision, privilege, the third constituent part of the Father's discipline is its purpose. And simply put, the purpose of the Father's discipline is purity. It's your purity. It's my purity. It's based on the innate purity of the father and the induced purity of the son or of the daughter, of the child of God. Look at verse 9. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Uh, One person said, a father is someone you look up to no matter how tall you grow. Uh, My sons are both taller than me. Uh, Some of you young men, you may be Come better than your father at something, you may become faster. Um, if you do Brazilian jiu-jitsu with him, remember you can never tap him out, even if you're able to. That's just a rule. But you look up to a father. And again, what, oh, sorry, I digress. <laughs> Back on task. The author is bringing out the standard, the norm, what is right and what should be right. So based on the earthly fathers, now we go to the heavenly father, continuing verse 9, shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live from the lesser to the greater, from the earthly to the heavenly, so that you and I would see past the pain to the purpose, to God's good purpose. And this father of spirits, this is an unusual title for God. This is the only appearance of that in the New Testament. He's just using that to contrast your uppercase father, your uppercase heavenly father, with your lowercase earthly father. Verse 10, for they discipline us for a short time as seem best to them. Again, this is the norm. This is a loving father who disciplines out of love and concern, but the best of men are, the, are men at best. Your earthly father, as good as hopefully he was or is, is fallible, is fallible. But God, continuing on, but he 
your heavenly uppercase father disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Our heavenly father, your heavenly father, your father of spirits is infallible. He is not fallible. He will never overdo it and he will never overlook it. He will never neglect it. The amount of discipline that you get will be precisely measured to the last grain of exactly what you need and what I need. And mark this, beloved. God, watch this. God uses lesser evils, your afflictions, to drive out greater evils, which is your sins, to increase your holiness. Again, God uses the lesser evils of your afflictions to drive out the greater evils of your sins to increase your holiness, to make you and to make me more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And simply put, the strong Christian is the disciplined Christian. And the reality is, even when we think of James chapter 1, can it all joy, my beloved brethren, when you undergo various trials and tribulations? That's one of the most difficult commands of God. I mean, we understand there's a supernatural joy. We understand there's an abiding joy. But that, that doesn't mean that we rejoice and jump up and down when we lose our job, when we're diagnosed with cancer, when we're betrayed by someone. But we trust God. And the reality is that in our human frailty, most of us have the temptation to want to be strong without the exercise. We want to have the soft, tender eyes without ever having to weep and to cry. We want to be able to comfort others without first being in a circumstance where we ourselves are comforted. And my go-to passage for this last one, you can listen or if you want, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul writes these choice words. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Beloved, that is the purpose of the Father's discipline. Finally, the fourth con constituent part of the Father's discipline is the product. What does it produce? What is the harvest of the Father's discipline in your life and in my life? And this is discipline's bounty. Look at verse 11. The author says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. That's an honest recognition that there are seasons in life when sorrow has the upper hand. And sorrow is not in any way, shape, or form inherently sinful. Sorrow is right and appropriate. I did a funeral service on Friday. I had a friend of mine, a pastor in Albania that 
passed away this week as well. Life is full of sorrow. Life is full of difficulty. Life is full of mourning. But for those of us in Christ, it's not the end of the story. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. The verse continues, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the harvest. And what the author does here, again, he just loves athletics. He loves athletics. Yet to those who have been gumnazoed by it, uh, the word gumnazo from which we get gymnasium, he returns again to the athletic metaphor he began in verse 1 and all the way back to 10, verse 32. Uh, The King James Version says, yet to those who have been exercised by it. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7, same word. Discipline yourself, gumnazo yourself for the purpose of godliness but the point here is the product of the father's discipline it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness peace and righteousness beloved dear friend understand this you cannot have true peace without righteousness true peace and righteousness go together in the economy of god and even here the author mixes metaphors from the athletic world to the farming world and we understand, I guess, in the farming world, I don't know much about farming other than what I learned from reading and studying and seeking to exposit scripture that pruning produces greater fruitfulness. And the spiritual application here is that the harvest of suffering is not reaped by people who simply experience it. The harvest of suffering is reaped by those who are trained by it, who are disciplined by it, who grow by it. Um, It's said that A.T. Robertson, the Baptist theologian and Greek scholar, had a young graduate who was getting ready to leave Southern Baptist Theological Seminary to go into his first ministry. And A.T. Robertson told the young man, if you go to a hard field, stay by it. You may not be able to help it, but it will help you. Sound words, words that I can empathize with, not here at my beloved Santan Bible Church, but in a previous life. It's the same kind of language that James said in James chapter 1, verse 12. He said, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And what James is saying there, what the author of Hebrews is encouraging, exhorting his audience, what God is encouraging all of us is that our response to trials demonstrates our true character and it's the same theology doctrine application even as John the apostle gave also in Revelation chapter 3 continuing his vision there on the Isle of Patmos Revelation 2 verse 10 recording the words of Jesus Jesus says to the church do not fear what you're about to suffer behold the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation 10 days Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Beloved, God does not command us to enjoy the experience of suffering. He does command us to rejoice in the outcome, to trust him as to the outcome of the discipline, of the training, of the correction. And dear Christian, never forget that behind the dark cloud of God's providence is the smiling face of God with his care and concern resting upon you. That's why 
The Apostle Paul wrote to the immature church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, momentary light affliction. And again, this is the Apostle Paul. He was beaten with rods 39 times, shipwrecked, uh, and the list goes on and on. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Or the psalmist in Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. Beloved, in Christ, we run the race as victors. We fight the fight as those who know the outcome. We know the judges or in this case, we know the judge, uh, judge's apostrophe S, not judge's S apostrophe, sorry. We know the judge's decision. Well, in conclusion, one time of tremendous harvest, tremendous pouring out of lifeblood on the fertile soil of the witness and the gospel testimony was the Reformation. Many examples of reformers and pre-reformers that offered up their lifeblood because of their faith. Uh, Guido de Brees was a reformer. He was a student of John Calvin. He was the, one of the authors of the Belgic Confession of Faith, and Guido de Brees was ex executed by the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm going to read some excerpts from a letter of comfort that he wrote to his beloved wife the month before he was executed. This is what he wrote. Catherine Raymond, my dear and beloved wife and sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm writing this for the consolation of both of us, and especially for your consolation. Since you've always loved me with an ardent affection, and because it pleases the Lord to separate us from each other. I feel your sorrow over this separation more keenly than mine. You did know when you married me that you were taking a mortal husband who was uncertain of life. And yet it has pleased God to permit us to live together for seven years, giving us five children. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he would have provided the way. But it did not please him to do this, and may his will be done. Now, remember that I did not fall into the hands of my enemies by mere chance, but through the providence of my God, who controls and governs all things, the least as well as the greatest. How then can harm come to me without the command and providence of God? Beloved, I pray that you, my dear and faithful companion, to join me in thanking God for what he has done. Now my God has extended his hand to receive me into his blessed kingdom. I will see it before you, and when it shall please the Lord, you will follow me. This separation is not for all time. The Lord will receive you also to join us together again in our head, Jesus Christ. This is not the place of our habitation. That is in heaven. This is only the place of our journey. And that is why we long for our true country, which is heaven. I pray you, my dearly beloved, to console yourself with meditation on these things. Consider the honor that God has done to you in giving you a husband who was not only a minister of the Son of God, but so esteemed of God that he allowed him to have the crown of martyrdom. I am in a very good school. The Holy Spirit inspires me continually and teaches me how to use the weapons in this combat. And I feel the power of God perfected in my weakness. I am 
held in a very strong prison, very bleak, obscure, and dark. The air is poor and it stinks. On my feet and hands I have irons, big and heavy. They are a continual hell hollowing my limbs up to my poor bones. There are three guards of 40 men before the door of the prison, but for all that, my God does not take away his promises, consoling my heart, giving me very much contentment. And since such things have happened, my dear sister and faithful wife, I implore you to find comfort from the Lord in your afflictions and to place your troubles with him. He is the husband of believing widows and the father of poor orphans. He will never leave you. Of that I can assure you. And he finishes, I pray that you will continue this love toward our little children, instructing them in the knowledge of the true God and of his son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Catherine, farewell, my dearly beloved. I pray, my God, that he will comfort you and give you contentment in his good will. I hope that God has given me the grace to write for your benefit in such a way that you may be consoled in this poor world. Grace be with you. At the prison, your faithful husband, Guy Debris, minister of the word of God at Valenciennes, and presently prisoner for the Son of God at the aforesaid place. He wrote the letter April 12, 1567. He was hung May 31, 1567. Beloved, that is the school of suffering. That is the one that in some way, shape, or form we all walk through. May we run the race with endurance. May we fight the fight with strength. May we do all these things with hope and trust and faith for the glory of God, for the encouragement and blessing of our beloved brothers and sisters around us and those around the world that are even suffering similar fates as this, and for part of our witness of the love of Christ and the hope in Christ to a lost and dying world. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, again for our salvation. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Thank you for the confidence we have. Lord, we confess we are weak. We fall short. But Lord, we thank you that you hold us up. You come alongside us. You, we are sealed in the very title deed of the eternal heaven by virtue of the sacrifice, Lord Jesus, you offered on our behalf. Be glorified in all that we do. Help us to run this race. Help us to fight this fight with endurance, with love, even with joy as best as we can. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. And even now, with great anticipation of the good work you're doing on godly young men and women that are moving on to the next chapter of their lives. Amen.